This week's episode is with uh, historian Marco Dumancic, who writes about film. Uh, now, what I find really fascinating about about this topic is that film is a very visual medium, but both books and podcasts completely eliminate that visual aspect. Uh, so, Sean, I just want to ask you, how do you think about and how do you approach writing or talking about these kind of very visual mediums? Um, I actually never really thought about it before. Uh, and and this this particular episode has a couple of clips from some of the movies that um, that Marco talks about. And then I'll just let me just mention the films and let listeners know that I'll the there are two on YouTube, the two Russian films. One is called Shumni uh, Dien, which is from the 1960s. Uh, and the second one, uh, Russian film, is uh, Three Plus Dva, and those are both available on YouTube. And I'll 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 embed the video on the the podcast post the post on the podcast website for this episode. And then the third film that there's a clip from is a, is Rebel Without a Cause. I'm s- assuming most listeners will be familiar with that James Dean film, and uh, that of course is not available on YouTube. Though you can tune in if you have HBO Max, they have a thing with Turner Classic Movies, and you can watch it there. Um, as for the their question, you know, when I was putting the clips in for this episode, it, it did dawn on me how, you know, on the one hand, him talking about the films, and, and Marco does a good job painting the picture of the scenes that uh, from the clips we'll listen to, uh, but I did realize how much you lose just from having the audio. Uh, so I actually, I don't think I have a good way to to render visual mediums in text or even in, in purely sound. Um, so I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I think, I think it's a really difficult but interesting problem to tackle. Um, definitely here, like when you hear interviews on NPR and other famous um, kind of talk radio stations about films, they often do a similar thing where they include include those film clips. Um, and sometimes that for me, it just drives me to want to go see the movie. I'm like, this is a very interesting sound clip. I want to see that movie. Um, but then you notice how things change so much when you actually have the visuals. Uh, but Sean, I just want to ask you, so what are your favorite type of movies just out of curiosity? Well, I'm I'm incredibly uncultured. I'm I'm not a big film person. Um, but and basically the movies I like are are superhero movies and Star Wars and stuff like this. I just I watch the Marvel superhero films over and over and over again, uh, for some insane reason I don't know. And I've been a longtime reader of comic books as well. But uh, it, you know, it's it's actually funny, it's, especially in the context of this episode, because the gender the gender politics of these films are are to put it mildly atrocious <laughs> in terms of the, the hyper masculinity, uh, the arrogance. Um, and then, and then I've noticed a new thing with these films is they're trying to have, they're trying to make these feminist statements. Mm-hmm. So they have these very canned and staged scenes where they have female characters, female, the female superheroes kind of have a, a particular part in the film. Like it's usually like one particular scene where they have the stage mm-hmm. and they, 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 in many ways, it's a, it's a, they engage in the same kind of violence, but I think it's because it has this, this feminist statement. We're supposed to cheer it on <laughs> as if it's like, you know, you go girl, kick ass. Whereas in, and for a man, like, you know, to show men engaging in this violence, it's like, 
a, you know, another toxic form of masculinity. Oh, that's so fascinating. It's, it's, yeah. So the, the gender politics, I think, on, on, are on the whole quite awful. Uh, and, and in many respects, I mean, the politics and uh, of these films are quite awful. I mean, I remember there's a scene in one of the Iron Man films where Tony Stark declares that he's privatized world peace. And that is just like awful, like it's just an awful sentiment. So I, I think, I mean, I think that the the whole thing of it is that when I was a kid reading comic books, I used to dream that these films would exist and now they exist probably a bit too much. And so I'm totally sucked into them regardless of their horrible <laughs> political messages. <laughs> How about you? Like, what is your film? Oh, gosh. I like some of the more uh, experimental, artsy-fartsy art house films. Um, what comes to mind is maybe Maya Darren, the French filmmaker from many years ago. Um, but much less character-driven and much more, uh, I don't know, maybe visual, maybe just absurd. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More aesthetic. Yeah. In this regard. Yeah. 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 Less, yeah. less cerebral and, or even able mm -hmm. to be like comprehended and more just, uh, you know, kind of an emotion on a screen. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have very, <laughs> very different tastes. <laughs> you have a bit of culture and, and I, I don't. I don't <laughs> know. Is, I don't know, know about it's that. It's fine. But. I think this is a really timely interview, though, today. This episode is really timely because we're finding ourselves right in the middle of Pride Month. Um, and this interview focuses a lot on uh, looking at masculinity and the construction of masculinity in the context of the Soviet Union and in the context of Soviet film. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. I found this interview uh, with Marco de Munchik's really fascinating too, just because I, I've done some academic work on masculinity and, uh, and I've also done a, a couple of interviews. Um, Marco is not the only one I've interviewed on this question. And I'm, I'm, I'm personally fascinated by it, maybe because I myself, outside of these horrible comic books, <laughs> I didn't have many good male role models. Uh, so it's, it's always, the, the issue of masculinity is something that I, I'm, I, I think about in terms of myself and, and others. And also, I think we'll talk about after a bit after the interview about how, you know, we are, I think we're in another moment, another crisis of masculinity in our, our you know, general political culture that, that I think this film, this, I'm sorry, that I think this interview actually has provides some interesting things to think about. So... Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. So welcome to the SRB podcast. Each week we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. Um, as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amelia Parlier. Um, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So, Amy, how about you? Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce Marco? 
Marco Demanchic is the director for the Center of Innovative Teaching and Learning and an associate professor at Western Kentucky University's History Department. Um, his research covers a range of topics involving gender and sexual identity, both in the Soviet Union during the Cold War and in former Yugoslavia during the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, his new book is Men Out of Focus, The Soviet Masculinity Crisis in the Long 60s, and that book is published by the University of Toronto Press. Here is Marco Dumancic. Well, Marco, it's really nice to talk to you um, about your new book, Men Out of Focus, The Soviet Masculinity Crisis in the Long 60s. So just to start, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thanks, Sean, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. Um, so as you could probably tell from my last name, I am from the former Yugoslavia, a country that no longer exists. And I moved to the United States uh, back in 1996 uh, after the wars in Croatia and Bosnia. And I suppose like most people from that region, um, I, uh, my, in my family, in the past three generations, we've gone through all three incarnations of Yugoslavia, from uh, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia to Tito's Yugoslavia and to now uh, independent countries of the former Yugoslavia. And when we came to the U.S. in 1996, I didn't know that my path was going to take me to study um, Soviet history. And many of my friends joked that uh, we moved all the way to America to study Soviet history. Um, but I became completely entranced when I came to Conega College and took my first uh, Russian language class. And then continued in UNC with uh, Don Raleigh and Louis McReynolds. Um, and that really firmed up my, my affection and love for uh, Soviet history and particularly post-war Soviet history. Um, since then, I've, I've been at Western Kentucky University for the past seven years. Um, and in those seven years, uh, finished this book, which, uh, which started as my undergraduate um, thesis. So it's been with me for a long while. How old were you when you came to the United States? I was 16. Uh, oh, yes. wow. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, um, uh, I really didn't know at the time um, where my, my bath was going to lead. And we were actually going to stay in the United States for only two years. My mom came to finish her master's degree. And so the original plan was to, after two years, return to Croatia. Um, but then I decided to apply for college and got in. And uh, I've been on the academic path ever since. So when you when you came, I mean, coming at 16, that must have been quite a, you know, traumatic adjustment. Did you uh, did you come with various stereotypes about life in America? And and how did the reality <laughs> mesh with it? Well, absolutely. Well, I would say two things. One, I remember when we first uh, when I my first experience in an American supermarket, um, I think it was Giant Eagle. Um, and we came upon the aisle of ice cream and frozen desserts. And uh, when, I, when I saw the plethora uh, and endless variety of ice creams and choices, um, I just thought to myself, but why? Why do they need so many? <laughs> um, and then I remember our first, um, our first breakfast was at Dunkin' Donuts um, in Boston. And I remember trying Boston 
uh, cream donut and thought to myself, I have come to the promised land. <laughs> um, but, but for me, I think because the war was the most recent experience, um, it was doubly the experience of the United States, but also living in a country that hadn't experienced war uh, for that while. So for me, it was both both um, this this country of endless prosperity, but also a country of peace. You know, it's interesting. Now that I now that I think about your biography and the, your book, um, you know, men. Uh, let me just state, restate it: men out of focus. You know, your your experience is a your personal experience is one of a maturation in a post war or post conflict situation, right? In your biography, and then of course your book is dealing with a crisis of masculinity. Uh, in a also in a post-war situation. So, how did you? What it, how, is there a connection between your own personal biography and how you got interested in this topic? Yes, absolutely. I think I suppose that for most of us, there is a personal angle. In this case, it's somewhat indirect, uh, in the sense that uh, I guess what fascinates me about masculinity is from my own experience of growing up closeted and gay. And I think for most of my teenage years, I tried to figure out how heterosexual masculinity functioned so I could better pass as, as heterosexual, um, particularly in the context of Croatia, which was at the time, right, very much interested in, in a martial masculinity that was, that was very specific. So I think I was always fascinated in trying to figure out how masculinity operated because that type of masculinity was always so foreign to me and had to be rehearsed. Um, so, uh, and the the question of uh, masculinity changes really came from uh, an article that I read that was completely unrelated to Soviet masculinity and directly tied to U.S. masculinity of the 1990s. And the question was really about how uh, we came in the United States to have this ideal of masculinity that was at the time uh, called metrosexual, right? So uh, men who were, uh, who knew fashion, who went to the gym, had beautiful sculpted bodies um, and where, where that image came from or where that ideal came from. And it turns out that, or there's a theory that it came from the AIDS epidemic and the point at which uh, gay men who were HIV positive um, were prescribed steroids uh, for to decrease the wasting away. Um, and eventually that had the effect of uh, HIV positive men who took steroids looking healthier and buffer and more muscular, muscular than uh, men who were HIV negative. And so um, this led to a whole slew of changes in men's appearances, particularly in these urban areas that were gay hotspots, such as New York and San Francisco and, and Miami. And so I was just fascinated by how a crisis of this order could fundamentally affect the way men not only understood themselves, but also how they led daily lives. And I was so interested in this question, I, I thought of testing the, this hypothesis in a, in a different setting, and that was post-Stalinist Soviet Union. So I thought this was such a huge cataclysmic change for Soviet history. I really wanted to see if um, the hypothesis held true and that in, in an era of huge economic, political, and social change, um, 
did masculinity change and, and were people aware that masculinity was changing and where were they having conversations about it? And luckily, hopefully, as the, as the book shows, in fact, that did happen in Soviet society. Wow, that, that's really fascinating, actually. I didn't know the AIDS angle to the, the metrosexual. I always assumed it was some sort of, uh, you know, capitalist capture of trying to turn homosexual, like exploit homosexual homosexuality as a as another market <laughs> to exploit um that's really interesting huh so so then that that leads me to to ask then um with this book what what is the story you're trying to tell then about masculinity so i was um i was completely fascinated by this uh 1968 article that i found that was titled um uh, protect the men or Birgit the machine um, that was written by this demographer, uh, Boris Urlanis. And in it, he talked about how men were dying at um, a precipitous rate and usually uh, dying in their 50s from heart complications, health complications, usually um, conditioned by uh, rates of alcoholism. And uh, it was interesting in the reaction to the article uh, female journalists and female readers agreed that there was, in fact, a problem, but they disagreed on uh, the uh, the medication, so to speak. Um, whereas Rulani said there there should be uh, uh, women, in particular, should take better care of their men, and that there there should be clinics for men uh, to help them navigate this particularly difficult period for them that women argue that men are their worst enemies and should take care of themselves and become better partners, come home earlier, help with chores, and that this would naturally lead to them uh, leading healthier and better lives. And so I thought to myself that this article came out in 1968 and it was very reminiscent of the, the gender wars in the United States. I figured that this didn't come out of nowhere and the ground had been set earlier for this for this debate. And uh, in the book, I trace this um, gender wars of sorts to to the 1950s. Uh, and, and I say that I, I think often in Soviet history, we we think of destalinization and uh, and the sort of post-war um, narratives as being central to what happened in Soviet history, and I just wanted to add modernization, or uh, as as part of that narrative that that led to these gender wars. Let, well, let's let's uh, set you know have you set the scene for us because there is a major demographic hit on the male population of the Soviet Union because of World War II. Um, you, as you said, you have, um, it's a period of significant change, um, it, in terms of Soviet society becoming more modernized, becoming a consumer society. Uh, and, and you, you also talk about it. So it's a time of incredible change and a time of incredible anxiety. So uh, what do you mean by this, this change anxiety dynamic and, and how it, what's the general scene of the time? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I always think of it in terms of somebody going to the Soviet Union in 1953 and then returning 10 years later. And I think they would be hard pressed to recognize the Soviet Union as being the same in 1963 when compared to 10 years earlier. Uh, 
everything from the way people dressed in terms of what book they, books they read and what movies they watched, how they related to science and technology, and you know even when they where they traveled and how they related to the world. And and so, uh, as Soviet scholars, I think we've grown accustomed to thinking of the fifties and sixties as a world of world-class science research, of gulag memoirs, of international travel and huge international festivals, right? Kremlin being open to the general public and, and the youth culture that was fashioning its own path forward. Uh, and so while I think as outsiders uh, and, and certainly at the time, a large segment of the Soviet population greeted these changes with enthusiasm, uh, I detected that there was a great deal of uh, anxiety. I mean, even I think even when you accept change and welcome change, there are always unintended consequences. Uh, so I think as the world became more complex and the old Stalinist scripts had to be revised, and I think that leads to anxiety because the world that you knew and the things you could take for granted were no longer were no longer there. And so, uh, for example, I think. Uh, anybody would be happy to go from living in a communal apartment to a single family apartment. I think that it's not just a question about changing lodgings, but uh, changing a fundamental rhythm of life. And I think uh, based on the movies and the cartoons and short stories um, that the book talks about, I think there's a great level of anxiety in terms of uh, power relationships and power renegotiation between both genders and generations. You know, another thing I was thinking too, you know, with uh, de-Stalinization, you get a more pluralistic society. You know, there there's more, uh, there's a, a kind of opening of possibilities. Does that, in terms of masculinity, does that opening of possibilities contribute to the anxiety? Like the, the opening of the possibilities of different types of masculinities contribute to the anxiety. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent. I think there was an opening for for women in particular um, after Stalin pronounces the women question resolved, um, and in a, in an addition, uh, women get this much more significant role in society as as Khrushchev announces uh, uh, consumerism and light industry as being central to the Soviet economy. And then secondly, that there is an emphasis on uh, the younger generation, particularly given the demographic collapse that you just referenced. So there's, there's space, there's more space both for women and for the younger generations. And that certainly destabilizes the uh, Stalinist status quo as it, as it relates to gender and generational power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at this through film, and uh, what drew you to look at it? Look at film as opposed to another type of source base. I'm glad you asked that. I, I think in, in relationship to the previous question and the story I'm trying to tell, I think the secondary story is super interesting, and that is uh, this '50s and '60s being the golden age of cinema. And I call it the golden age for two reasons. One, production shot through the roof um, from uh, a dozen movies in Stalin's uh, final years to over 150 feature films being produced in a year by 1959. Um, it was a 
uh, multi-billion dollar industry in the 1950s and 60s. And not only was the domestic production of film astronomical, but there was a skyrocketing influx of foreign films, everything from Italian, British, and of course, Indian and Egyptian films. So um, Soviet citizens went to the movies several times a week uh, and were well-versed in, in, in films that were coming out both domestic and international, so much so that there was a, uh, a competition in this very popular uh, film uh, magazine, Sovietsky Ekran, and hundreds of thousands of people uh, sent in votes for the most popular films, most popular uh, actors and actresses, both domestic and foreign. And of course, the Moscow Film Festival got its start uh, in the 50s and 60s. So for all these reasons, there's this uh, rebirth of cinema, not just as an art form, but also as as a public good, if you will. So this incredible film culture that arose in the 50s and 60s was the reason why I thought that cinema in particular would be a great way to chart the ways in which uh, gender um, gender wars and, and a masculinity crisis uh, emerged in this period. And and another thing too is you're trying to put Soviet Soviet cinema in terms of Soviet new wave cinema in a in a broader context of a new wave of cinema style and production that's happening throughout Europe. So what is how what is Soviet new new wave cinema and how does it connect with say the new wave in France or in Italy? So um also I'll first uh, I'll start with the defining what what the new wave meant and what it was supposed to represent and it was it was a reaction, a direct reaction to the big studio production of the 1930s and 40s. And anybody who's seen Stalinist films or Hollywood films in the 30s and 40s know what I'm talking about. And so much in the way uh, the generations of the 50s and 60s wanted to distance themselves from the crimes of the 30s and 40s, they wanted to distance themselves from the cinema that was seen essential to um essentially totalitarian aesthetics, right? Whether it be Italy, Germany, or the Soviet Union. And so they did that by doing everything opposite of the studio productions. They went into the streets whenever they could to film. They used amateur actors, or if they didn't use amateur actors, they tried to make the dialogue as colloquial as possible. So in, in a way, if, if there's an analogy, if uh, pre-war and wartime cinema is a melodrama. The uh, cinema of the 50s and 60s, or at least of the new waves, is supposed to be a poem. Uh, it's supposed to be short, lyrical. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have a beginning or an end. And it's supposed to convey a mood more than a message. So that's that's essentially what new wave tries to do. But I, what I think is interesting and what I talk a little bit about in the book is that so on the surface, it tries to be a reaction to totalitarian aesthetics. But at the same time, this is where the anxiety creeps in for the, for the directors, um, you know, 90% of whom are male, is that you see a reactionary message as well. So you see movies in which consumerism is coded as female and female as evil and bad. Um, so that we can't really talk about the new wave as wholly progressive just by looking at the stylistics. I think the messages in, in new wave cinema can be misogynistic and can be reactive and conservative. And that's where 
you can you can see that anxiety. But the gender politics isn't about you know repositing a, a Stalinist masculinity that's more heroic and martial and and these kinds of things, right? So, if that's the case, what is the what are the what are the kind of tropes of masculinity that it's trying to convey? So I think you're right. There there isn't an attempt to return to an unrealistic. Uh, expectations for masculinity because men don't want to be held uh, held accountable for those either. But it is a reassertion of a status quo in which men had more control over their lives. So, for example, they um, and we can talk about the way in which ways in which it was similar in the West. But there's a sense that men are losing control. Uh, in terms of who they work for, why do they work, and who they're responsible to, right? Are they independent actors, or are they held accountable to their wives, to their children, and to their bosses? And so this is where that modernization anxiety fits in, where they find that they don't control their world anymore, and that their worlds are controlled by others. You know, I have to say, like... um having looked at this question a bit in the 1920s, I'm struck by how similar the, the overarching anxieties are about, you know, the, the disruption, trying to arrest the male, the, you know, maleness or masculinity amongst all of these changes to try to, in a way, I kind of read it as almost attempt to stabilize things rather than say, posit a new form or an old form. Yes. And so I think you're right that, I mean, Stalinist masculinity had a very specific kind of form um, and it was ultra and super heroic. And this reaction is more of a return to um, uh, the mujik, right? The traditional Russian male who, who um, can control uh, or exert influence in his family and in his immediate world. So it's much smaller to scale. Uh, than the Stalinist masculinity, which was supposed to conquer the the world, the universe, and nature. Um, but there is a sense that even the most immediate world for the post-war male is getting out of control. And is this is the sphere in which this masculinity operates? Because again, I'm I'm kind of bouncing it off of a Stalinist concept as much as I I understand it. You know, like you said, it's it's the Stalinist idea of masculinity is really like a, a world one. It's a global one. It's like you know being the avant-garde of of you know world socialism or whatever. But it seems to me that the masculinity that's being dealt with in this period of the '60s. Uh, is one that it's about family. It's about workplace. It's it's a it's a it's a far more um, the masculinity is is seems um, how do I want to put it kind of more focused on the smaller, more intimate spaces, which I think goes along with the kind of development, a more development of intimate life in the post-war period. Yes, I, I think definitely drawn to scale. Um, and uh, I'll go even a step further in terms of thinking about uh, scale. It's the era of the atom, right? And so, <laughs> and so, but even in that sphere, right? It's it's and in some ways Stalinism was super easy because the ideal was 
the pilot, right, who could fly to the North Pole and back uh, in a in a single flight. And so that seems in some senses much more manageable than negotiating a marital or romantic uh, or fatherly uh, relationship, right? So they're trying to navigate this emotional minefield and finding themselves completely lost. And so in some senses, they're looking back at wartime as with with nostalgia, right? Because things are so clear and defined and you know what a man is supposed to do. In the 50s and 60s, they come back and they come back to this world that is not only complex in terms of science and technology, but is also so much more complex because they're asked to become uh, better fathers uh, they're asked to become um, uh, husbands who are emotionally responsive to their romantic partners. So, and that's much more difficult in a way than within what um, they, what was asked for them in the 1940s. And so, in that sense, that causes that reaction. What would what uh, talk about a film that kind of captures some of these issues that you know, say, a listener might want to, or even myself for that matter would want to watch to see some of these things operating? So one that comes to mind, um, it, uh, it was a play first and then made into a movie. Uh, it was called A Noisy Day, Shumni Dian. And in it, uh, the protagonist is actually a high schooler uh, who lives uh, at home. And his uh, brother is married to a woman who is obsessed with buying furniture. Uh, which wasn't that unusual of a of a script for uh, for post Stalinist film, and uh, what's interesting is when you when you first look at the apartment, all the furniture is covered with with sheets. Right, it looks like somebody's either moving in or moving out, uh, or hasn't been there in a or while. Or died. Or died. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's and, and the apartment is crowded with furniture. Um, that the uh, the wife does not want touched, moved, or looked at, and um, the teenager accidentally spills ink over <laughs> one of her coveted uh, furniture pieces, and upon seeing the ink uh, on the table, she takes his fish uh, in the aquarium and throws the fish out of the window. And and um, as a reaction, uh, the high schooler takes a saber that belonged to his father who died in World War II and starts cutting into the furniture, um, uh, being completely mad that she had just murdered his pet. And um, the drama ensues then in terms of what, what happens to the relationship, in the family relationship, and it, it turns out that the wife convinces the husband to leave the family, right? They can't live together anymore because um, a grave crime had been committed against the furniture. 
and and I I'm just I was attracted to this movie because the the script and the conflict seems so far from from something that would seem familiar to us. And really, you have everything there in terms of um, gender wars and in terms of uh, women uh, driving the um, you know uh, having control of of their husbands in terms of setting the agenda for what's important in family life and uh, the anxieties that men have about negotiating their marriages while at the same time uh, exerting control over what happens. Uh, Amelia, you want to come in? Yeah, um, I've got a question for you. So just since you're looking at film and it's a very visual medium, I'm kind of wondering about what visual triggers or visual signals um, do you often see in these films that kind of signal uh, like this is ideal masculinity or this is the masculinity that we're aspiring to um, in addition to like the character and their behavior? I think that's an excellent question. So I would say that there, what's interesting is that the ideal is absent. Um, and what you have is um, negotiations and explorations of what um, uh, the uh, ideal Soviet masculinity should be. So whereas it is completely um, straightforward in Stalinist films in the 50s and 60s, um, you can't really tell from uh, from visual cues what a um, ideal masculinity looks like. And I'll just give you an example. There is um, a movie that features a hardened criminal and he escapes his uh, penal colony before he serves his sentence and escapes to Leningrad to continue his, uh, his criminal lifestyle. And uh, a number of people try to dissuade him from uh, engaging in criminal activity and going back to the straight and narrow path, and none of them are successful. His friends, his family, his former lover, um, all of them implore with him, but to no avail. And it's not until he meets his son, who he hasn't met and did not know existed, that he uh, turns his life around uh, and actually returns to the penal colony to serve out his time and then come back and, and live out his life. And so you get these really interesting protagonists who you don't see in Stalinist film. And so the, the focus is more on the variety of male experiences and then the variety of anxieties they experience based on the context in which they find themselves. About women, um, is there, you know, with this this anxiety about uh, masculinity and the crisis of masculinity, what and and you you open with this interesting dynamic where I mean it's it's it sounds so common where it's either you know men's per, you know people's personal responsibility to get themselves in you know in order or it's like larger structures it's the system or society etc. What places women have in this vis-a-vis? Uh, -vis this crisis of masculinity, what role are they supposed to play? Uh, this was actually the most, probably the most difficult chapter uh, for me um, because it was, it was hard for me to figure out, but it, it, it was because they played two very different kinds of roles. Um, one, you had um, the angel for the lack of a better word. Um, and that was, 
uh, and, and to Amy's question about uh, coding, right, they always looked very sort of traditionally Russian. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of makeup. Um, they were very au naturel, uh, often in rural settings, uh, perhaps um, sort of announcing the village pros of the of the 60s and 70s. And so uh, they were always there to uh, help the man navigate um, some problems that he was having. And so they themselves did not change. They were, they were more like catalysts. Um, and, but what was interesting is the men needed them, right? The men couldn't have, uh, rediscovered their purpose without them. And on the other hand, you have examples of, of the wife that I just talked about who was hoarding furniture without using it. Um, and they were very successful in manipulating their romantic partners into doing what was good for them, um, that is, the wives and, and girlfriends, rather than what was good for them as, as men and as citizens. But in both cases, men are decidedly helpless, right? They're helpless because the angels uh, need to help them out. And then in other ways, they're being easily manipulated by these um, shrewish um, furniture hoarding wives. So in both these cases, you, you have a scenario in which women play a decisive, if not dominant role. Right, right. I just actually looked up this trope for uh, these American films, the Manic Pixie Girl. Yes. <laughs> it yes. Sound, the first one sounds exactly like the Manic Pixie Girl. <laughs> no, that is. And that's uh, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because that is um, that was my breakthrough for this chapter. Um, because I didn't know how, where to, where to place these quote unquote angels. Um, but that's, that's essentially what they were. Um, that was the sort of the Soviet version. <laughs> and, and what about then sexuality? Uh, you know, what was the male, what was male sexual practice that was, or was it even addressed in film? Um, this, <laughs> I'm so glad you bring this up because I, I played around with the notion of writing a chapter on these um, um, buddy relationships. And the thing is that uh, so uh, the most popular films featured either a dvoika or a troika of, of, um, of men, right? They were always buddies or pairs. And that relationship was much more important in the evolution of a male protagonist or protagonists than the heterosexual ones um and so uh so i would say that um women um portrayals of women were very schematic but uh directors played paid much closer attention to the relationship between the men and those seemed much more intimate and romantic to me than uh, than heterosexual pairings what are some of the other issues? I mean, because you have you have chapters on science. I mean, especially well, let's take the science one actually, because it you know you have Yuri Gagarin, who's kind of held up as this new Soviet hero. He's the embodiment of masculinity of sorts. But you point out a, an interesting contrast where, on the one hand, you have this hero cosmonaut, but you have science that causes all sorts. It contributes to this anxiety of masculinity. So, what was that all about? Yeah, and I think um, yeah, Erica Fraser has done great stuff and um, on uh, uh, cosmonauts and, and scientists. And you're absolutely right. There was this narrative that was very Stalinist 
in a way, right? Conquering the universe, conquering the atom. Um, and then also rob robots, right? Semi-sentient or fully sentient robots. Stories about them were rather common. And so you you in some ways you see this uh, reincarnation of the Stalinist trope, right? Of, of male as conqueror of his universe, literally. Um, but when you when I started looking closer at these movies, both about um, men as um, creating life, right, with robots uh, and creating their Frankenstein's on the one hand, and then uh, men as conquerors of the atoms and other natural elements such as lightning that um, you see them ultimately as failing uh, in all these ways. So um, one of the most popular movies of the day, uh, Nine Days of a Year, uh, and it featured the period's heart heartthrob, uh, Alexei Batalov. Um, and the, the story is really about a nuclear physicist who's exposed to a lethal level of radiation during his experiment, uh, but the experiment actually fails. Um, it does not achieve its desired result. And by the end of the movie, it's unclear that the physicist is actually going to make it. Um, and then as you see him through the film, you see him uh, struggling physically and mentally to continue his work, right? So he's ultimately the victim of, uh, of, of his own experimentation and his own science, and he doesn't even succeed in the end. Right, um, and in both movies um, that uh, that feature the robots, it was actually a condemnation of the scientists themselves, because uh, the robots failing was not the robots failing, but the failing of the architect, um, and mostly due to the their lack of emotional intelligence, right? Because they wouldn't have devised these robots uh, if they were. It was they were, they were thinking clearly on an emotional level. So um, there's a lot of doubt and anxiety about science and technology and it becoming too complex for men who didn't know how to handle it. This is a period where economies, um, whether it's in Europe, the United States, the Soviet economy is becoming to the beginnings of a post-industrial economy, right? You know, the image of the industrial worker is kind of taking a, a backseat to this new male worker, which is the scientist, the intellectual worker, et cetera. Um, how does the, the, the post-industrial move to a more consumerist society away from the, you know, producing steel and all of these tropes you find in Stalinist discourse affect uh, masculinity? I, if I could, um, this, I think I would have wanted this whole book to be comparative um, because the, well, not, not in the comparative sense. Okay. I mean, I want to ask you about the comparative, okay. but the, 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 just first in the Soviet case. Yeah. So, um, if you're thinking about, um, consumerism more broadly, it really affects every element of, uh, uh of an adult's life. So it really starts, I think, with the private apartments and the building of a type of suburbia in the Soviet landscape. So it's not just about the apartment, but also needing to furnish that apartment with particular kinds of goods, right? Um, and then there's this, an expectation as the professions turn to be less industrial and more office bound, 
that you are also now expected to dress in a particular kind of way uh, and, in, you know, in, in suits. So everything about um, the urban environment changes, particularly as the Soviet Union as a whole, right, during this period becomes majority urban. And so it's, um, it's a complete transformation of, uh, of how men are expected to behave. And what's interesting about the films in which men encounter a crisis, that the only tonic essentially suggested for them to reinvigorate their masculinity is to go to Siberia or go to the tundra and, and reconnect with their masculine self. Um, and actually, the cover of the book comes from a uh, comedy. And the the setting is one in which uh, three friends, unsurprisingly, um, go to the uh, Crimean coast, and their whole purpose is to become, quote unquote, barbarians. And they deprive themselves, uh, allegedly deprive themselves of all kinds of civilizational traps, right? So they don't shave. They... Uh, um, they only wear swimming shorts, they uh, eat out of cans, uh, and otherwise avoid contact with, uh, with other humans to connect to their uh, sort of barbaric selves. And that all changes when two women um, discover their beach and uh, want to also uh, take up residence there. And this is where the gender war element happens, where eventually two men fall for the charms of the women and eventually start dressing and start shaving and start smoking. They take them out on dates, right? So wherever they go, right, men are trapped by quote unquote civilization, which is this kind of post-industrial moment that you're talking about. And, and what about the comparative aspect? Because honestly, like this crisis of masculinity uh, is throughout the, the so-called Western world. Um, you know, a lot of the tropes that you speak about, I mean, they're, they're easily transfer, uh, transferable to other contexts. So how does the how does the Soviet experience fit into that more pan-European or pan-Western crisis of masculinity of the of the long 60s? So, uh, since you mentioned tropes, um, I'll just bring out maybe a couple that are uh, maybe familiar uh, to listeners. Um, one is that came to mind is, of course, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, featuring James Dean, and I don't. I, even though it is an imperfect analogy, uh, there's there's a scene in which James Dean confronts his dad, um, who's wearing an apron because he is fixing a meal for uh, for his wife, who's nursing a headache in uh, in the bedroom, and as James is trying to talk to his dad and asks him to stop. Um, doing what he's doing that is being subservient to his mother uh, and get him to take off the apron. He's ultimately unsuccessful. What did you do? Drop it? Yeah. You dropped it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. Listen. No. I'd better, better clean it up before she sees it. Let her see it. 
What? Let her see it. What can happen? She's... Um, and that really he's the, the rebel without a cause, right? The rebellion is against this masculinity that's been subjugated to, to um, both, uh, both domestic consumerist life um, and to this um, companionate uh, sense of marriage. Um, the other trope that I found um, super useful is the man in the gray flannel suit. Um, and in the United States context, right, this is uh, the man that comes back from World War II and in this peacetime transition uh, finds himself being part of the pack, the drove, right, of men who take the train from suburbia into the city um, where they earn a paycheck to be able to subsidize uh, the suburban lifestyle for his wife and kids, but also finds himself subservient at work, right, uh, to his um, CEO and boss. Um, so, uh, and then um, in, in the British context, uh, a play and then a movie that came out with Richard Burton called Look Back in Anger um, also reflects this frustration with the post-war moment, which uh, which the character in Look Back in Anger sees as anti-heroic. Um, and there's this great line um, that I've sadly memorized. Um, and he says something to the effect of, um, I suppose people of our generation aren't able to die for good causes any longer. Uh, we had all that done for us in the 30s and 40s uh, when we were still kids. There aren't any good, brave causes left. Um, so uh, you you get this, I think, in, in Italy and France and, and uh, the U.S., it's this age of affluence. Uh, but for, for men, it, it seems like a step back, right, where they're selling out to the age of affluence and to their wives and their bosses and their kids. Um, and you see that moment of crisis in, in new wave cinemas all across uh, the continent and the U.S., so, so the Cold War doesn't function as that new heroic struggle. I mean, this is like where where does the Cold War fit into all of this? Then, I, um, Sean, I wished and hoped that it would, <laughs> um, but I mean, I think in the Soviet context, it's it was a little different because the peace movement was so strong. Um, so there was a de-emphasis on a nuclear war, and I think it was much more of a phobia in the U.S. than it was in the Soviet Union, but I really could not identify the Cold War as a significant factor in, in the shaping of male identities. I wanted it to. I really did. <laughs> I was looking for it. Because I would think like this would, you know, in terms of like looking for the, you know, the next struggle, the next cause that would you know, play some kind of role. And, and it's actually really It's actually equally fascinated that it doesn't. And, and wondering why. Do you, do you have an answer as to why? No, the closest I could find um, was um, uh, the Virgin Lands campaign. That was the place where I found them trying to reinvigorate, right? That this was supposed to be the frontier for the post-war generation. Um, but uh, the Cold War did not seem to figure into uh, this equation. And finally, you know, you you have this discussion uh, in your introduction, and you come back to it in in the end of the superfluous man, 
So uh, who is this superfluous man and, and what is his fate in, the, in this long 60s in your story? So the superfluous man is, is a concept that I, that I borrowed from uh, uh, imperial Russian history. And most famously, uh, the superfluous man uh, is uh, a, a literary character, uh, Oblomov. Um, and the Russians come up with this term Oblomovshina. And he's most famous um, uh, for reclining in his in his bed, um, thinking deep thoughts, uh, but never actually committing himself to action. And so, in the in the nineteen fifties and sixties, um, Soviet censors and, and Soviet um, government officials, and then I mean, and, and citizens as well, eventually grow tired of these nineteen fifties and sixties heroes who are just always thinking deep thoughts, and and are trapped by by indecision um to to actually commit to anything but that is because they are reflective right that is supposed to be their their superpower and the fact that they're thinking also makes them um hard to influence right they're not going to run to the trenches uh without without a care in the world so that is on the one hand their superpower on the other hand it is their achilles heel um and you know the fate of the superfluous man. I think is is super important because um, when Brezhnev tried to reinvigorate um, Soviet masculinity, so to speak, in the 1970s, and more to the point, when Putin tries to do the same, they really can't do it because of this period in in Soviet history where uh, the superfluous man is actually an alternative. Uh, to the man of action. So even when I think uh, there is an acceptance of this man of action, that uh, it cannot be in isolation from thinking about the superfluous man. Um, so I think even though it's his, this is the, the period of the superfluous man in modern Russian history was relatively brief, I think that the impact of this trope has been uh, very significant. That was Marko Dimancic. Marko Dimancic is the director for the Center of Innovative Teaching and Learning and an associate professor at Western Kentucky University's History Department. His research covers a range of topics that involve gender and sexual identity in both the Soviet Union during the Cold War and in former Yugoslavia during the 1980s and the 1990s. His new book is Men Out of Focus, the Soviet Masculinity Crisis in the Long 60s. And this book is published by the University of Toronto Press. So Amy, we just heard this interview uh, with Marco. Um, so what are some of the thoughts you had after listening to it? Yeah, well, I'm really happy that y'all brought up the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. That is one of my it's one of my favorite things to talk about, one of my least favorite things in film, probably, but one of my favorite things to talk about in film because it is uh, it can really be applied to a lot of stuff. Um, for any listeners that don't know, uh, this was a term coined in 2005 by the film critic Nathan Rabin. Um, and the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is essentially a, uh, a main character that functions in a very supportive capacity that doesn't have a lot of her own agency, um, that just kind of props up the story of the main uh, male character in a movie. Um, and I just love that this, this trope 
it's not limited to our current film history. It's not limited to all this time since 2005. It, and it's not even limited to our culture. It's just pervasive across film history going all the way back to the very beginning. And I, I think it's really interesting topic to discuss and think about. Yeah, I was I was surprised. And, and of course, when when Marco was describing one of the, the tropes that, uh, you know, female characters play in these these films in the Soviet 1960s, uh, and that popped into my head. And I was really surprised that this exists in a different context as well. And it, it's a the, the manic pixie dream girl is a really interesting trope, too, for me, because there's always like just as you said there that character is just there to guide the male character to essentially full humanity and i and i want to say as a side there's a, I, if i remember correctly there's also one of these tropes for um for black characters where i think it's the magic negro or something like this that that is there to usher the white character to their humanity Right. And this is a similar situation with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's kind of ushering, guiding the male character to, to fulfill his, you know, full kind of humanness as a male character or discover himself. Uh, and what I find fascinating about it, too, is there's always this weird sexual tension. Right. Because they're not actually supposed to be romantic, romantically involved because that would spoil the role. But there's always this weird sexual tension in these platonic relationships. The, the other thing I wanted to say about, about this interview that really struck a chord, and I, I mentioned this in the, in, in the introduction, and that is, you know, what I've noticed, and I, I, like I said, I dealt with some of this stuff uh, in my historical research on the Young Communist League in the 1920s. And there seems to be more crises of masculinity than crises of femininity. Um, and I think to some extent we're going through one now, particularly um, after the election of Donald Trump. Now there's a lot of discourse. And of course, Me Too is another a big moment that really has brought the issue of, you know, cis male uh, sexuality, cis male behavior, mansplaining, and all of this. So I think I'm wondering if we are, and of course, there's a backlash against this that that you can talk about that you just informed me of. Um, that uh, I wonder if we're undergoing a, an interesting shift to a different understanding of masculinity or a different, uh, how should I put it, um, acceptable form of masculinity. Yeah, the thing that jumps in my mind about all of that is this uh, Twitter trend of super straight um, that these kind of, you know, right leaning Trump supporting young white men have started using hashtag super straight. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the acronym for that is SS. Um, I think that's probably quite intentional, at least on the part of the person that coined the term, whether it is intentional on the part of everybody that uses it, I, I can't say. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really interesting. I think you bring up a really good point that uh, there is a lot of crisis of masculinity and there's very few uh, instances of crisis of femininity. And the only one that comes to mind that I can think of is um, kind of the transition that femininity went through from the Mao years in China to contemporary, uh, more open market China. Um, and then, you know, uh, especially looking at it through the lens of contemporary art, where um, in Maoist China, it was very 
like women needed to look like men, they needed to behave like men, there was no distinction between the responsibilities between men and women. Um, and sexuality, at least visual sexuality, was really repressed for women. Um, and now, looking at some of the art, you're seeing it like this uh, resurgence and maybe um, uh, reclaiming of female sexuality. Uh, and this really was a big deal in the in the '90s, at least as far as uh, as far as my knowledge of Chinese art history goes. Um, but you can you can still see it to a certain extent. But it like we were kind of talking this, about this a little bit before we started recording the episode. It's really more of a binary with femininity, right? It's the, it's the Eve versus Mary. It's this, you know, sexual versus chaste and, or chaste. And it's not, um, it, it's not the same, it's not the same feeling as the masculinity crisis. It's not the same feeling of being completely up in the air. And where do we fit? What do we do? How are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to act? It's more of a fluctuation between uh, or oscillation between these two binaries. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, I think the um, at least the way it's talked about in a you know discursive way, masculinity, when there's a, you know, a crisis of masculinity, it seems to have more societal uh, stakes than, say, a crisis of femininity. Um, which, of course, is not surprising considering the need to maintain or reproduce some semblance of patriarchy in, in our society. Yeah, because it's not just about masculinity. It's also about maintaining a power structure. Right. And so femininity, OK, we can have a crisis, but at no point are we also redefining what it looks like to be in power. And with masculinity, it's always trying to craft that definition as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've been listening to the SRB podcast. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amy Parlier. Um, if you like this podcast and enjoy it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter and any other social media platform. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to our my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the SRB podcast and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. As always, I want to thank all of the my patrons and listeners out there. And until next time, bye.
characteristics of the typical male are as follows. There's the stereotypical, brutal, assaulting, barbaric male. The one that's obsessed with violence. The one that we see in Hollywood movies and are most accustomed to. We also have what is now known as the sensitive rapist. One who wants to feel like there's a mutual understanding before he entraps the woman in a cycle of codependent sexual service. Then there's the pseudo-feminist, who may be committed to a woman, who may even be involved in the women's movement, but still oppresses by including his own self-serving patriarchal agenda in the situation. He may be from any racial or class background, from any religious or sexual orientation. All of these characteristics may and often do overlap, thereby adding a deceptively complex dimension to the typical...